This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Wood storks are one of Florida's most iconic wading birds. They're easily recognizable due to their long legs, black beaks, and the bald heads and upper necks of adults of the species. They're the only species of stork that breeds in the U.S. and are known for making nests high in the trees of mixed hardwood swamps, mangroves, sloughs, and cypress strands. They rely on wetland habitats where they forage in both shallow freshwater and estuarine marshes. Back in the 1930s, the wood stork's breeding population in the southeastern U.S. stood at an estimated 20,000 pairs, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Now those large colonies of nearly a century ago are a distant memory. By the 1960s, the numbers declined to about 10,000 nesting pairs. In 1967, wood storks were first classified as endangered on the federal endangered species list. In 1984, their protection status was downgraded to threatened, but that decision proved to be premature as suitable habitat for the birds was being decimated here in Florida, and their numbers dropped dangerously low to some 5,000 pairs. National Audubon Society's Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary in Collier County is the Woodstork's historically most significant rookery on the North American continent. But in recent years, agricultural expansions and alterations to natural hydrological cycles have made it harder for the birds to survive here, forcing them to expand their range into coastal marshes in states like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas. That range expansion has helped increase the overall number of wood stork colonies in the U.S., And those gains prompted the U.S. Department of the Interior in 2014 to announce the Woodstork's protection status being downgraded from endangered to threatened. At that time, Woodstork's had only attempted to nest in that historically important corkscrew swamp region in just two of the previous eight breeding seasons. Then in February of this year, U.S. wildlife officials proposed removing the Woodstork from the endangered species list altogether. Given the bird's iconic status and its role as an indicator species for the health of the greater Everglades ecosystem, today we're taking a closer look at wood storks in a conversation we're structuring as the good, the bad, and the ugly, just as we did a few weeks ago in a conversation about the Florida panther. Joining me in studio is Director of Conservation at the National Audubon Society's Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary, Dr. Sean Clem. She has decades of experience as a community ecologist and conducting research concerning hydrology, ecology, and highlight impacts from environmental stressors. Her research projects have taken her throughout the greater Everglades ecosystem, including Everglades National Park, the Big Cypress National Preserve, the Florida Keys, and the Picayune Strand, among other locations. In 2013, Dr. Clem helped establish the Western Everglades Research Center. She's leader and founder of the annual Corkscrew Watershed Science Forum, a trustee with the Crew Land and Water Trust, and a member of the adjunct graduate faculty here at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Sean Clem, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you so much for having me today. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So, Dr. Clem, let's start with the good. Um, what are the positives when it comes to the current status of this tentpole species? Well, I think that the good thing that we're seeing about wood storks in recent years is that it's a species that's very resilient. We're seeing a species whose core range was in the Florida Everglades, and that's really where you know the majority of the individuals in the U.S. were located and where they nested each year. And what we've seen, you know, through time as the Everglades population has 
declined, we've seen Woodstorks adapt to a changing world, which is a great trade. It's exactly the trade we want to see for for these species because we've got a changing world and because that gives them hope of being able to keep up with us a little bit. It seems like the good is, is tainted a little bit because, you know, these established breeding populations outside of Florida, again, as you said, speaks to the adaptability of these species. But do you think federal wildlife officials considering this delisting are really looking at how rapidly the environment is changing? Are these coastal marshes and other states uh, reliably going to be suitable habitat given impacts from climate change, sea level rise? That's a really good question, and that's, I think, a question we don't really know the answer to. And I think that's part of the challenge here, is that there are so many unknowns, and once we delist a species, it makes it vulnerable because it is a loss of federal protection for not only you know, the animals themselves, but for the habitat that they need to live in. And so I think that's one of the challenges with you know, kind of looking into that crystal ball and saying, well, what's the next step for the species is there's still so much changing that I think it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. And I think that delisting is risky for that reason. Yeah. And also this species, you know, as I mentioned in my introduction, there's a history of kind of putting the cart before the horse, isn't there? There is. There's, it's really, you know, the species really has a neat history. And I think it has a neat history centered here in Collier County in southwest Florida, Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary was first on the national, you know, in the spotlight, kind of on our radar in the early 1900s when the plume trade was threatening all wading birds across the Everglades because they were being hunted for their feathers. And that's when National Audubon first sent a presence to southwest Florida, and they had a warden living within that colony to protect the birds that nested there from the plume hunters. The pressure was relieved a little bit on Woodstork's with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but then logging moved into Southwest Florida and was again another threat for that species. And that was when the sanctuary was established in order to protect the birds that nested there at the, at the corkscrew colony from, you know, the trees that they nested in from logging. Mm. And so, you know, the sanctuary was established in 1954 in order to do that. Next year in 2024, we're going to be, you know, celebrating 70 years of protection for that species. But over time at Corkscrew, it hasn't been a great story. We've seen that colony decline. And we've seen it, you know, it's a, you know, wood storks are an indicator species. So it's reflecting the changes that we're seeing here in southwest Florida. But the thing I think that's really interesting about wood storks is while wood storks were declining across the whole Everglades region, they were still doing really well at Corkscrew. And that allowed them time to move to those new colonies that we're seeing pop up in South Carolina, Georgia. So I think in a lot of ways that Woodstorks kind of bridged, or Corkscrew kind of bridged the Woodstork population. And and I think the Corkscrew has a lot of responsibility for allowing Woodstorks to succeed the way they have. Yeah, absolutely. And how remarkable all these conservation efforts and this recognition of the environmental importance of this specific place so many decades before you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and sort of the birth of the environmental movement as we know it today. Um, Audubon came out against the downgrading of the Woodstork's protection status to threatened when that happened in 2014. Likewise, now you're opposing this proposed delisting altogether, but there's not exactly a consensus on this even within the environmental advocacy community. Groups like the Center for Biological Diversity actually support the move. And I mean, does that make it a bit harder to advocate and get your message out when people could be getting these opposing positions? 
Well, I think that the problem is that we're uncertain. No one's yeah. really certain what's going to happen. And I think that Audubon's perspective is that we all want to see Woodstork recovery. That's what we've been working for. That's what we've been doing research and public policy to look for. We want to see success. But to us, this isn't what success looks like. We're not quite there yet. And so we think it's just too soon. All right. Uh, Possibly shifting a bit into the bad here. Uh, I had mentioned in my introduction about how, you know, sometimes there'll be multiple consecutive nesting seasons. We're here in southwest Florida. We don't even see the birds attempt to raise chicks. What have we been seeing in, in recent years at Corkscrew? Has there been some successful nesting years? There have been some successful nesting years. What we've seen at Corkscrew is that the nesting years are few and far between. Mm. Corkscrew used to be one of the most consistent, one of the largest, if not the largest. You know, back in the 1960s, Corkscrew was producing over half of the whole Everglades, the whole U.S., you know, South Florida population of wood storks, you know, in the majority of years. We were we were the heart of the South Florida wood stork population, which was, you know, the majority of the population at that time. What we're seeing in Corkscrew is we saw a slow decline, you know, with development moving into the area as we were losing wetlands, as Everglades restoration was still trying to get on its feet. Mm. But what we've seen in recent years is woodstorks are choosing to not nest a lot more frequently than they're choosing to nest. And we think that has a a lot to do with the over-drainage that we're experiencing in the Corkscrew Swamp being the sanctuary, the area around the sanctuary. We've seen a lot of landscape-level changes, not only to the actual swamp where the wood storks nest, but to the places around Southwest Florida where they're feeding while they're nesting, while they're trying to raise chicks and get the energy resources to fledge chicks. I think this is a great time to talk about how the wood storks, what their foraging strategy is, because I think that'll help people understand why these changes to the natural hydrologic cycles can be so dire. Absolutely. And they're, they're, you know, wood storks are thought of as like the Goldilocks species among the woods, uh, among the wading birds. They represent a lot of the wading birds because if you can keep wood storks happy, you can keep a whole suite of other species happy. So we talk about wood storks and they're an important species, but they really do represent a lot of other species. So what wood storks need is they need shallow wetlands. They need, well, they need a variety of wetlands. They need deep wetlands that'll grow lots of small fish and crayfish and other, you know, aquatic prey items. And then they need a variety of shallow wetlands that are drying throughout the nesting season because they they feed by touch. So they need shallow water where they can move their bills through the water and feel for large concentrations of prey items. And they need those food resources to be available throughout the nesting season. So what they need is a variety of wetlands that are drying down at different times throughout the nesting season that are making food available for them throughout that whole time. All right. You know, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Ian's catastrophic destruction to our region. That storm made a landfall right around the start of what's typically considered wood stork nesting season. I know Corkscrew was inundated with about half a foot of rainwater just over a four-day period during Ian. How did that impact conditions in the swamp and uh, particularly when it came to wood storks? Well, so last year in the 2023 nesting season, we had a couple dozen wood storks that that nested, so 20 to 30 nests or so, which is positive because we're seeing them nest, but those numbers compared to the thousands of nests each year that we saw back in the 
1960s and 70s are um, you know, definitely reflective of this trend that we've seen. In terms of the, you know, so we've got the Woodstork colony, which at Corkscrew, which had a lot of water from that storm. So I think that's probably what prompted those Woodstorks to nest. You know, that storm brought enough rain that we were able to kind of overcome some of the overdrying that we've been seeing from, you know, the, the drying that the Corkscrew Swamp's experiencing. We have two other colonies, though, that we do monitor in southwest Florida. One was up on the Caloosahatchee River, and we worried about that colony because it, you know, you could see from the trees that it did take a lot of damage in that storm, mm. but we still had wood storks come in and nest, and it was still a good year for that colony. All right. Can we talk just generally also about the wood storks nesting strategy? Um, I know this is kind of aside from the main point, but are, are these mating pairs, I don't want to anthropomorphize them, are they faithful from year to year? Do the same pairs seem to come back together? They definitely seem to come back to the same area. Um, you know, they have, they're faithful to, you know, the nesting site. They're not faithful to, to mates a lot, the way a lot of other wading birds are. So site fidelity. Other, other birds not, are, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so they, they definitely, you know, s- southwest Florida, despite the challenges that they've seen in southwest Florida year after year, woodstorks are continuing to come back to, you know, to the corkscrew colony. We see woodstorks show up here every year. Um, they just, you know, come and kind of mill around and do whatever they do to assess nesting conditions and move on. So they definitely have that site fidelity, but they don't seem to have any kind of specific mate fidelity. And what about the actual nesting itself? Like, um, I don't know, how many eggs would typically be in a single clutch? How many chicks can a single pair, you know, reliably take care of and reach to, you know, fledgling stage? Yeah, so they nest in large groups, and so that's what these kind of big colonies are. So, you know, back in Corkscrew in the 1960s, for example, which was a big colony of wood storks, we would see thousands of nests, if not 10,000 nests. In terms of the number of, you know, eggs that are produced, we see at the Corkscrew, in southwest Florida, we see sometimes four eggs. I don't can't remember having seen more than four. Mm. Sometimes we'll see all four of those eggs hatch out, but there's pretty low survival. Um, you know, it, that's that's when you get into that period that you really, the, the food resources are critical. Those are very big birds. They're quick-growing chicks. So, you know, f- keeping those chicks fed is, is a job for those adults. So usually what we want to see in terms of survival is, you know, two, two and a half of those, on average, of those chicks fledging each year. Uh, what we're seeing in the Everglades system in general is we're seeing wood storks come and nest. We're seeing pretty good in, in good water years. So like, for example, the year after Hurricane Irma, when there was just tons of water in the system, mm. lots of nesting because, you know, there's lots of fish, lots of prey availability. They're producing a lot of chicks. Um, what we're seeing on average in the Everglades system is that the um, average number of chicks that are fledging per nest is not low enough to really sustain that population very well. All right. And and I wanted to highlight some of the, you know, broader efforts going on at Corkscrew to maintain or perhaps regain the integrity of the natural space. When it comes to the hydrological changes, I mean, that's not something you can unilaterally mitigate as an organization, but there are these large-scale efforts to deal with something called Carolina Willow. Tell me about this. So we've got two big problems at, at, at Corkscrew right now. The biggest really is this hydrology question, which uh, we've found in recent years through some modeling that we've done is caused by 
improvements to the downstream flood control structures, mm. you know, the canals and the way water's managed downstream from the sanctuary, which is just allowing water just to be pulled out of the sanctuary rather than letting it serve its flood control purpose in the environment. So we are working to try to adjust that, to try to you know figure out exactly how to stop that overdrainage and try to restore some of the hydrology of the swamp. But what the changing hydrology does is, you know, it triggers growth in species like Carolina willow. They're native shrubs that are pioneer species. So they see change in the environment and they see it as an opportunity and they spread. And so what we're seeing not only at Corkscrew, but throughout much of Florida's wetlands is when you have hydrologic change, it puts willow into this like hyperdrive of production and it spreads across. So we're taking wetlands that were historically filled with grassy plant species, we're seeing them turn to shrubs. Mm. And those shrubs are reducing the ability for wading birds and other species to get in there. So even though we've got some good wetland habitat, it's reducing the availability and the openness of that habitat. So it's decreasing the quality of it. What we've been working to do at Corkscrew is, you know, once we were really able to understand why we were seeing this, what we're calling shrubification of our wetlands, in which shrubification is really a wetlands problem globally. We're seeing Mm. a lot of wetlands across the whole world change from grassy species to shrubs. So we've been going in and trying to remove that willow and remove it's not only just willow, it's things like buttonbush and red maple, these really, you know, aggressive native species and trying to restore it back. So we're going in with in the peak of the dry season when those wetlands are dry, grinding up the willow, letting water return to the system. Ultimately, it's the water drowning those, you know, dead, the dead willow, and we're seeing tremendous results from that. So far, we've done just under 1,400 acres. Um, So it's been great success for us at the sanctuary. All right. And I know this is a little aside from the point, but it is a challenge you face. This this, this is not a, a small feat just in terms of the amount of money it costs to reclaim this as well. Absolutely. It's, it's been a tremendous effort. We're grateful for all the you know corporate sponsors that have allowed to do this, all of the individual donors. It's been huge, and that's been one of the challenges. We have a 13,000-acre sanctuary, so we've been able to um, you know, we're, we're coming up on, we've probably only got a few hundred acres of willow left at this point. So we're nearing the, the finish mark for our project. But when we think about taking what we're doing and scaling it up to the scale of the crew watershed or places like Big Cypress National Preserve or other parts of the system that are seeing the same shrubification, it's a challenge. And so we're really trying to figure out how do you, how do you stay on top of some of these species to um, keep them under control until you can get the water right. And then, yeah, exactly, because there's still the hydrology question. This isn't something that you do and then it's done. This is going to be an ongoing effort. Absolutely, yeah. We need to get the water right in order for it not to be an ongoing effort, in order to be able to get fire back into the system, because that's the other big part of this, is when willow takes over a wetland, it becomes resistant. And once it gets to a certain size, it's resistant to wildfire. Mm. or to fire. So we couldn't even put prescribed fire in there. So we're unable to really manage our habitat effectively. And at the same time, when you, when you can't burn your landscape, the other parts of it are, you know, becoming a liability for um, wildfire. And so it's really, you know, makes managing land in a responsible way really challenging. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that we had touched on in our brief phone call the other day. But 
Do you think it can be easy for people, particularly who live here in Southwest Florida, to get the wrong idea about what's really going on with the wood storks? And by that, I'm, I'm referring to, you know, decades ago, I never saw these birds in highly developed areas. But I can tell you, you will reliably see wood stork sightings if you drive down Summerlin Road, just in the drainage canals along the highway. Um, I mean, is that a concern that these, because they're becoming more visible in these developed areas, it gives people a, a false positive impression? Yeah, it is. It is a little bit of an irony. People are saying, "Well, we're seeing more wood storks than ever before. They're they're on my lanai. They're in my backyard. They're you know hanging out at our uh, a clubhouse in our community. They're in the roadside ditches, and you're seeing them more than ever before because there's you're seeing them in places where people are. You're not seeing them out in the middle of our natural wetlands because we because the condition of those wetlands have declined in some cases or those wetlands have been lost. And so now they're resorting to moving into more urban areas. And in part, that's part of the success of wood storks. You know, they're adapting to nesting over in Palm Beach County. You're seeing them nest in very urban areas, but they're mm. still going to the Everglades to feed. Mm. And so even though you're seeing them there, they're, they're now having to deal with the hazards of urbanization. They're having to fly longer distances to those feeding sites. And so it's not it's not a win for wood storks in those situations. And what happens to fledglings who are hatched in these developed urban areas? We don't even know that, really. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 a challenge. I mean, luckily, wood storks are you know they're a species that is used to. They have the ability to fly a long way to forage. They are very energy efficient flyers. They're used to. If we have a a bad year here, they're going to be flying you know counties away in order to feed. They they're able to do that. But, you know, the dangers where you go into some of those wood store colonies in those urban areas and you're finding that they're eating, you know, chicken bones and they're, mm. they're not getting the good prey items that they need. All right. Well, and, and I think the quote unquote ugly part of this conversation about wood storks brings us full circle back to this proposal to remove them from the endangered species list altogether. If that happens, what would that really mean specifically for the species? And by that, I mean... They'd still have some protections under, say, the U.S. Migratory Bird Treaty Act or the Clean Water Act. The individual birds would still have those protections. You know, those protections were put in place like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to to keep people from killing wood storks for their plumes or for, you know, for, for killing the individual birds. But what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was able to do with the uh, listing of the wood stork was protect their habitat. So they're protecting, you know, in, in large part the places where wood storks feed. Mm. And that's our wetlands here in southwest Florida. So by losing that protection, we're putting all of those wetlands in a place where they're vulnerable to development. And there's not anything else in place that will continue to protect those wetlands. Once we lose the protections of the Endangered Species Act for those wetlands, we don't have protection for you know against development. Right. So this is really you're saying this in addition to protecting the birds, this protected status also provides something of a tool for making sure that these, you know, broader development efforts and encroaching in on the habitat they rely upon, you know, making sure that they're they're really being scrutinized the way they need to before they're allowed to break ground. Right. And again, you know, it's bigger than just the wood stork. You know, while we are protecting those wetlands for wood storks, we're, we're protecting them for alligators, for otters, for all the other wading birds that are using that same habitat. And we're protecting those wetlands for the people that live here in Southwest Florida. Right. You know, those wetlands have a key role in allowing our aquifer to recharge for providing flood control. And we're, you know, when we lose that, we're losing a lot of things that 
I think we're taking for granted right now and that we're, you know, when you, when we have these big storms and we have the, the flooding that results from them because we have nowhere to store water anymore, that's when we begin to see the, the effects of that. And I understand that if federal officials do go ahead with the delisting of the species, they would impose this monitoring program for at least five years to make sure the population remains stable. Is that in any way a silver lining to you, or do you look at five years and say that's not enough time <laughs> to really know? I think collecting data and continuing to research a species is always a win. Okay. You know, is five years enough? I don't know. These are, you know, we're, we're looking at long-term trends. We're looking at a species that is long-lived and can see booms and busts in its population. I don't know that five years is going to be enough to really, you know, be able to tell us whether wood storks are really in a, in a good enough place to to lose that protection, because we know once we lose that protection, it's going to be really hard to ever get it back. It's hard to make any informed decision without good data. Are there particular challenges when it comes to studying wood storks or even just getting an accurate population count? Well, so so wood storks have the advantage of being white birds in a landscape that's predominantly, you know, not white. And so they're easy, you know, relatively easy to census from the air in a lot of parts of their range. We've got some challenges here in southwest Florida with, you know, species like wood storks because we have, you know, they're nesting in a lot of times underneath a canopy. We've got a lot more trees. And so I think that, you know, wood storks, like a lot of other species in different places, are easier or more challenging to um, get good numbers on. At the sanctuary and with Audubon, we uh, fly over the colony in a fixed-wing aircraft once a month in order to count the waiting birds in the nests. That works really well when they're nesting towards the top of the canopy. Once they get down under the canopy, we can make some really good guesses as to what's going on down there, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. All right. And my final question for you is a bit on the lighter side. Do you have a favorite time of year at Corkscrew? And I ask because for those who've never been, I think it's important to emphasize what a different experience you're going to have depending on what time of year you go. Yeah, that's like that's like asking the the favorite of your children, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the fall because you know you get that first um, you know the swamp is filled with water. Um, you get the you know that fall you know that winter light starting to come into the system. Um, you've got Waiting birds beginning to return to the system. I think fall is a, a beautiful time. We've got sunflowers that bloom off the boardwalk. But then you move farther into winter and you get that, you know, in, in the spring you get the foraging events where there's tons of waiting birds in there. But then I also kind of love the summer because it's quiet out there. It, it, so, so I think there's something to see at Corkscrew any time of year. And I, I think everyone should come see Corkscrew every time of year. I mean, it's 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 just, it's a magical place. It's it's such a, a privilege to, to play a role in trying to protect Corkscrew because it's such an important place, not only for people in Southwest Florida, but, you know, globally. Like, it's, it's a, just a gem that I think that uh, everyone in Collier County in, in Southwest Florida should make sure that they've had a chance to experience. Well said. Uh, that is about all the time we have for today's show, but I want to thank my guest. We've been taking a closer look at the status of threatened wood storks 
which is one of Florida's most iconic wading bird species, with Dr. Sean Clem. She's Director of Conservation at the Audubon Society's Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary in Collier County. Dr. Clem, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much again for having me. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO, Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.